Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Mike Michalowicz. Mike, welcome to the show. Henry, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. This is a, this is a great opportunity for me. I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. And so today what we're going to focus on is this challenge. You know, many business owners are often confuse about what do they need to do? What do they need to work on or fix next? And that leads us to a lot of busy work, exhausting hours working in your business, but not much to show for at the end of the year in the way of profits. So Mike is going to share some valuable insights from his latest book and from a previous book on how to determine what to fix next. Often it's about achieving predictable and consistent profitability. That's often what I find most business owners are challenged with. So we're also going to explore some of the key concepts from the other book I referred to, which is called Profit First. It was a huge impact on me. I've implemented a lot of the philosophies in that book in the way that I manage my businesses. To receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. So Mike McCallowitz is an entrepreneur, a speaker, an author, and a podcaster. His podcast is called The Entrepreneurship Elevated Podcast. Great, great show that you should listen to. He's the author, like I mentioned, of, of, of several top-selling and influential books, including Surge, Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, and his latest book, Fix This Next. He's a founder of Profit First Professionals. The Profit First Professional Organization is designed to support accountants, bookkeepers, and other financial professionals to substantially differentiate themselves in the market by introducing a significant service differentiator, which is helping their clients with these tools and techniques to maximize profitability, which again is what so many of us are challenged with. He previously founded, built, and sold two technology service companies. His second company, P.G. Lewis & Associates, was sold in a public transaction back in 2006. His first company, which we're going to chat about how he got to uh, in, in the conversation, was acquired by a private equity group. So once again, Mike McCullowitz, welcome to the show. Henry, it really is exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I, I'm, I always like to start back uh, in the early days when, when you were at university. I think you then went into technology sales right after school. Did I get that right? Yeah, and that was not my intention. I uh, I thought I'd leave school and, and go off to work for one of the big six accounting firms. That's what I thought was my destination to really be doing consultative work. But I couldn't get a job. I didn't get hired. I, I, I made two rounds of interviews and then got kicked out the door. So I started at a local small business. It was a computer store, basically. They, they sold in, integrated systems networks. And uh, that became the inception ultimately for my business. I started a few years later based upon what I knew. I knew how to set up computers and decided to start my own computer business. So it sounds like it came out of, out of that need. Did you, when you were in college and first looking for a job, did you think you'd start your own business at some point? Yeah, ne- never had the intention. It's interesting how we're, you know, our history, our life's experience dictates what we do in the future. I, I grew up in a family where my father had one job for his entire life. Wow. Uh, and I thought that's the way you, you work. So I was looking for that one job where I'd work forever. I never, there's, there's not an entrepreneur in my immediate family. I'm sure in the lineage of my family, in all families, there's probably entrepreneurial history, but I couldn't find any. So I, I had no basis for it. Uh, but when, when it happened, well, it was inspired by drinking too much one night. I went out, 
I, I was lamenting the place I worked at and said I could do more on my own and, uh, you know, a few bottles of liquid courage and, and I, I set out on my own. Um, but I fell in love with the process very quickly. The, as scary as it is to have no control in regards to where your next dollar is coming from, I should say no control, but that, that you're at the beckoning of, of clients. They, they determine when they're going to use you or not. You also have full control that you can get results. And if something's not working, you can adjust. You don't have to, you're not beholden to the requirements of a boss. Right. So it, it was this interesting kind of yin and yang of no control and control that I kind of fell in love with the entrepreneurial experience. Did you pretty early on feel like, okay, th this is what I was meant to do? Or was it a temporary thing until I can get that consulting job? What, what was your mindset back then, if you can recall? Yeah, what I recall, you know, once I did it, I was like, oh, I'm all in for life. I see. Um, but I was scary. It wasn't like, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is going to serve me financially. It was terrifying. I mean, the first few years, I got married very young. My wife and I had a son right from the beginning. And wow. we, um, we, we were living like hand to mouth. Uh, but my wife's like, hey, we're going to have peanut butter and jelly for lunch and dinner and, and sometimes breakfast. And that's just how we're going to be. And we moved into a really, really inexpensive apartment. And, and that's how we, we fueled this. It's interesting how when you have no money coming in, or very little, I should say, you can throttle back your lifestyle accordingly. Um, and we were not, we were living hand to mouth, but also there was a, a comfort and joy of that control. Mm -hmm. And over time, that fear of not having enough money was a great motivator to keep me going. But over time, it converted into confidence saying, oh, if I do stick with this, it, you know, entrepreneurial success doesn't happen overnight. But if I do stick with it, I, start, I started to see some wins here and there and it started to compile or pile on each other. And I started to gain momentum. And it was probably after a few years that I was like, this, this, is, this is a massive opportunity I'm sitting on. I just got to figure out how to do it right now. But I'm definitely all in for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's fascinating. I got to think that then those early struggles, managing the money very carefully, that's got to be what led to that, that, that approach and what ends up being in the profit uh, first book. Uh, it's yeah. got to be leave that influence that. It greatly influenced it. So th there was a turning moment. I remember it distinctly. I remember the day. I remember the hour. It was uh, February 14th, 2008, 530 at night, early evening. And uh, we were, it's Valentine's Day. We're, we celebrated at home uh, with my kids. We always have. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner for us. And, my accountant had called me that morning. I had sold, now built and sold two companies. One was acquired by Robert Half International. They're a Fortune 500. Another one was acquired by a private equity group. And I was full of myself, to be honest, Henry. I was like, <laughs> I got this all figured out. I know everything about entrepreneurship now. I've been an entrepreneur at that point for approaching 15 years. And, and I had become a self-made millionaire. So maybe it was more like 10 years. because I was in my early 30s. And uh, my third business, which I conveniently leave off my resume, was a calamity. I was an angel investor. I had no idea what I was doing. I actually call myself the angel of death. I was so bad at it. <laughs> I was losing money and I, I evaporated all of our wealth wow. um, and ran this business so poorly. Well, on that day, my accountant told me uh, I should declare bankruptcy or he gave me a choice. He says, declare bankruptcy or vacate your house, liquidate every asset you have, you're, you're broke. Ooh. And uh, I chose option two. I liquidated everything. We lost our house 30 days later. We lost our cars, everything we bought. The, the only thing we could afford is this beat up, rusted Durango uh, was our only car. And that 
moment became a, a seed, if you will, for change. I was, I, I was devastated. I realized that my paradigm of what made an entrepreneur successful was wrong. I had to reinvestigate this. And I struggled with it. I, it wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, let's figure it out. I went through depression. I struggled. But it was a seed. And over time, I started to investigate how things that work like profit. And I was always told that profit was the bottom line. It's the year end. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's wrong. Because when something is year end or bottom line, it means it's last. It's and human nature was indicator, last yeah. is not important. <laughs> and you know, we're, we're told the formula is sales minus expense equals profit. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're told don't worry about profit until the end. It should come first. So that's how I discovered for myself the profit first formula. It's, a, it's the pay yourself first formula applied to business. And when I started applying it, like this is a game changer. It, it changed my life financially. In fact, every book I've written in part or in whole has been something to fix around my own misunderstandings about business to Im improve my journey Yeah, and hopefully improve the journey of my readers. Um, is part of what led to that failure was part of that mentality where it's all about growing revenues all in, put in all the cash in. You were so overconfident. I got to think that, that you said, well, this can't fail. If I, if I apply the same things I've been doing, which is that hard work and, and let's just grow revenues. Was that part of it? Because I see that happen often. I mean, that's happened to me, certainly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I bought into, you know, it takes money to make money, uh, grow and the profits will come. I, I believed all of that stuff and was trying to live accordingly. What I found, Henry, is that sales translates actually to stress. It, sales is it's absolutely necessary. It, it's the oxygen of a business. If you have no money coming in, your business is suffocating. So sales is necessary. It alone, though, is not sufficient. Sales does not cure everything. So what I believe, what I know now, at least for myself, is that the more sales we have, the more obligation our business has. The more I sell, the more I'm responsible now to deliver on what I sold. So sales translates to obligation. And in a small business, the owner carries the business on their back. They, they're the do-it-all. They're, they're the superhero for the company. So more sales, more stress, more responsibility on the owner it means more stress on the owner. Many businesses sell themselves, sell their way into a business they can't stand mm -hmm. and they can't sustain. They're working all the time to keep up with the sales. What we need is adequate sales to drive profit, but then we need a profit formula. That's where profit first comes about. Once that's satisfied, we got to focus on organizational efficiency. That's what I wrote about in Fix This Next. We were talking off air about that, but it's a sequence of events we must go through to kind of level up our business. Yeah. Okay, great stuff. We're going to dive into that. But I think the other common denominator there as you tell that story is the support that you had from your spouse. Yeah, she, she is. Um, she's remarkable in, in a couple ways. She does not have an entrepreneurial bone in her body. Um, she is anti risk. Uh, she's scared of a failure. I embrace it. And I wonder if as individuals, that her fear of risk would put her, would compromise her and me, my acceptance of risk would compromise me if I would take too bold of risks. So she comes to this balance for us. Like, she's like, Mike, are you sure that's a good idea? <laughs> and in the moment, I may stop my feet and say, of course, it's a good idea. But as I think about what she shared, I, I make better decisions. The second thing is, but she's also a cheerleader for me. So behind the scenes, she's like, I'm proud of you. I, I'm, I'm proud of you. And when I wrote my 
first book. Like, so I, I come home with this crazy idea. Um, hey, you know, we, I, I built two multi-billion dollar businesses. I failed with this third one. Um, I'm going to leave business in the traditional sense and I'm going to become an author. And <laughs> I think it's a great idea and we can, we can do very well financially doing this. And she's like, um, I don't think authors make money. Are you sure? And I said, yeah, this is what my dream is. She goes, well, if it's your dream, you have to do it. So she supported something that if you look at it logically, an author is a really risky business to get into sure. financially. Very few people are successful at it. There's a lot of percentage wise, a lot more people that fail at that type of business than, than many others. But she also realized it was a passion and a calling that that was my, that was my pursuit of happiness. And so she cheerleaded me into something that wasn't logical. Um, so that, that's powerful that she can bring that balance, but also bring that inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that even after that failure, there was, that, was there anything in you that said, you know what, I've done this business thing. Let me go get one of those jobs and, and be more stable. Did that cross your mind? No, never crossed my mind, that, but conversely, it crossed my spouse's mind. I, when I first became an author, it was a struggle. And I guess it's my wiring. I'm so excited about what I'm doing, even though no one was buying it in the beginning. I was all in on this. Now, listen, by that point, I had three children, my mm -hmm. wife, a dog. Like, you know, there's mouths to feed. Right. But I, I get blinded by it. I'm like, I just got to go, baby, go. This will work. This will work. I'm illogically optimistic. Mm -hmm. And my wife came to me the same, my same, my wife who said just a year or two earlier, pursue your dream. You got to write books said, Mike, we can't afford to live period. I mean, we can't afford it. You've got to get a job to me. And I consider authorship entrepreneurial and I own multiple businesses too. I, I have a membership organization and a training company, artificial reality company. I'm still an entrepreneur. Getting a job is like a, a dagger through the heart. Yeah. That's the way I feel it around. It. Like hearing those words, it was, it was, it knocked the wind out of me mm. and she wasn't wrong. She was totally right. Um, so I actually started to look for a job, but really not in earnest. It was a, I was trying to placate her. I didn't even realize it was subconscious, but I was like, okay, I'll look for a job. Oh, I can't find a job. I'll continue to pursue my dream. But I pursued my dream harder and stronger and more business-like and then started getting traction. And then the day came when it was very clear that authorship was, was the best choice I've ever made. I see. I see. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Let, let's segue into the topic here that I want to dive into with you. Uh, and it's related to the, the latest book, What to Fix Next. As you talk about in that book, you know, you've, you've connected now with millions of entrepreneurs, um, either directly or through your organizations or through your books. And what you've come to in this book is that you've identified this challenge, which is we don't know what to work on next. We, we get yeah. stuck, we're spinning our wheels, and we don't know what to do next, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was very clear. I sent an email out to my readership. And I, I'm very blessed. I, I, over the years now, I have more and more readers that, that follow me and are kind enough to respond and give me their insights. And occasionally I send out emails uh, asking, what challenge do you face now? Because that is insights on why I need to write about next. So I sent an email out um, about five years ago. It takes me about five years to write a book. I'm working on three books right now. So one will come out in about a year. I have another one that's going to come out three years and another one that's five years out. So I'm always working on books. Five years ago, I asked, what's the biggest challenge you're facing in the year ahead? Because I wanted to get the big picture challenge. Well, I'm not the most technically savvy guy. I, I must have triple clicked or something because I got multiple responses because I sent out the same email multiple times on the same day. I got multiple responses from the same 
people with different answers for the biggest challenge for the year. Like in the morning, some guys like, I got a sales problem. In the afternoon, it was, I believe, a hiring problem. In the evening, it was a systems problem. The next day, it was a financial problem. It was very clear that the biggest challenge entrepreneurs have is knowing what their biggest challenge is. Yep. We try to fix everything, and therefore, we fix nothing. And we're just in firefighting mode every day. And, and, and yeah. it seems like that's, that's what we, and that's how we get sucked into only working in the business. And, and we, we, you know, we get up at the end of the year and like, what, what was it worth? I, I'm stressed, I'm exhausted, and I got not much money left over. I think a lot of firefighters, as they try to grow their business, they make a hire or two. I think sometimes we move on from a firefighter to mm -hmm. a few employees. Now we're a fire chief. It really is maybe a more glorious title, but it's the exact same problem. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. That is a good way to put it. Right. You talked about in a recent podcast, uh, an exercise that you have people do, where you put an A in the middle of the page. I was hoping you could walk yeah. me through that, because I think that that was helpful for me to, to kind of understand it and explain it. Yeah, I think it's a powerful illustration. So this is the, um, I call it the survival trap. And you can do it in your mind, or if you have a piece of paper in front of you, you can do it. But it's it's three steps. And it shows why we get stuck. And so what you do is you draw the letter A in the middle of a piece of paper and put a circle around it. And what A represents is where your business is right now in this moment. You know, the starting point, point A. And for many businesses, it's the current challenge or the current crisis, or maybe there's an opportunity presenting itself, but it's where our business is right now. The second step is I tell people to draw three or more, but you know, three arrows away from A in any direction they choose. So a short distance, maybe an inch away from the A, starting A going out. And they can be in the same direction, they can be in different directions, whatever directions you choose. And what those arrows represent are decisions we can make right now in this moment to get out of A, to, to get out of the crisis, to get away from the challenge, to grab on that opportunity. But we have multiple arrows. So you can go in multiple directions. The, the final, but the power of course is, any direction you go that gets you out of A, at least gets you out of A. But the final step, the third step, is draw the letter B in the bottom left corner of that piece of paper and put a circle around that. What B represents is what your business needs from you next. So A was the now, B is the next. And the question is, how many arrows from A point to B? And in many cases, when I do this illustration with a live audience, no arrows point to B. And the answer is, the question is why, the answer is very obvious. Because I didn't know where B was. How can I draw toward B if I don't know where B is? Right. That, that was my thing is how, how do I even know how to identify B? Yeah. So, because we don't identify B. So what we need to do is we need a tool. And that's why I teach and fix this next to find our B. We have to first ask ourselves, what does the business need from us next before we start resolving it? What we, instead what we do is we only analyze the now and we try to get out of it. But when you leave A, you end in a new A. There's a new now. So we leave crisis of today for crisis of tomorrow. And tomorrow we leave that crisis for the crisis of the next day. So we move in this circuitous pattern of crisis to crisis, fire to fire. But, but there's one more scenario, which is actually the most insidious and dangerous. What I do is with live audiences, sometimes people cheer for themselves that they drew an arrow toward B. They're like, hey, I got an arrow pointing there or even two. And I tell them, well, that's the worst case scenario because that's called happenstance. And happenstance happens. You didn't know where B was going to be, but you drew an arrow toward it. And how it manifests in business is, you know, business day in, day out, it's a struggle and it's a struggle. But then one day, this magical experience happens where everything clicks. Client pays on time. Employees are happy. Everything's wonderful. Big project rolls in. You're like, this is the day I've been waiting for. I've been working so hard. Finally, it's happened. And then the next day you return to work 
and it's a total disaster again. Mm -hmm. You're back in a survival. Why did it only happen for a day? Those are the days when we're in alignment with what the business needs, but we're ignorant of what the business needs. We just happen to do what's consistent with it. So we get that relief. So the problem and why it's so insidious is you moved toward B without knowing where B is. You end up in a new now, a new A, and you start moving another circuitous pattern. In fact, you don't replicate what you did before because it didn't work, because you didn't think it worked, because you didn't know where B was. So the first thing is we need to know what our business needs from us. Right. Then move from A toward that B, what the business needs, and resolve it. Once we're at B, then we identify what the business needs next. That's the C, and move toward it. And then those days that are clicking isn't just happenstance once every couple of years. Now it starts happening more regularly, once a month, twice a month, weekly, and then it becomes routinized as your business moves from A to B, B to C, and so forth. And we get into that rhythm. This is Henry Lopez with a brief interruption to introduce you to our sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs, and despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. A couple of things I personally find extremely useful about LinkedIn Jobs include the job description templates and the skills keywords. It makes it easy and fast for me to post a job opening and start receiving qualified candidates. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay for what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash happy hour. Again, that's linkedin.com slash happy hour to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Part of what you talk about also is that to understand that, to be able to identify that, we have to understand this hierarchy of needs for a business, right? That's right. So uh, that's a translation from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what I identified is that there is a, uh, a sequence of needs for all humanity and that the, the genetic makeup of all humanity is 99.5% the same. Henry, if you and I were standing next to each other, people would distinguish us based upon our height, uh, our weight, uh, if it's male, female in the room, it's the gender, if, if our skin color is different, it's our skin color. We, we judge people on these external factors, but when you peel back the skin of humanity, the, the internal makeup is the same. Like you and I are identical inside. And if, if I was rushed to the hospital because I'm having a heart attack and the doctor looks at me and says, she would not say, hey, Mike, your heart, before we do this, where do you keep your heart? Is it in your foot? <laughs> I mean. The hearts in the chest is always in the same spot. The biological functions are the same. And in business, I realized we judge our businesses on the skin, the external, all pizza shops, nothing like an accounting firm. An accounting firms, nothing like a manufacturer. Manufacturers, or, nothing or look like at look at how busy they are. They must be doing great. Yeah. Right, right. But but they but they're they're identical on the inside. They're identical on the inside. The, the biological makeup. And that's where I developed the business hierarchy of needs. Maslow talks to the human makeup and our need structure. The business hierarchy of needs 
speaks to the business structure. So very quickly, foundationally, every business, pizza shop to accountant to, to entertainer, we need sales, source of inbound revenue. That's the auction for a business. The next level is profit. Profit is the retention of, of cash. It brings stability to an organization. It's the absorption of that oxygen to the bloodstream of a business. Th that's why I was talking about, talking about sales earlier. You can, sell, you can sell a ridiculous amount of stuff, but if you're not retaining the cash, your business is at jeopardy. It has a high degree of stress with no stress relief, which is profit. And in this, sadly, in this COVID situation, you see how many businesses did not have profit. They didn't have any runway, and then they went out of business. Once profit's satisfied, we have order. Order is the creation of efficiency. That's the next level of needs. Once those needs are satisfied adequately, we can focus on impact. Impact is the creation of transformation. It's transforming clients' lives. Highest level is legacy. It's creation of permanence, where a business is designed to live into perpetuity for generations, well beyond the owner. Now, the, the key is this is not a ladder. You don't just climb up to the top. Mm -hmm. This is a hierarchical structure. One supports the other. They all live or function at all times. You know, just like you and I right now, as we're going back and forth around this concept, we're both breathing. Uh, it's subconscious. Well, now it's conscious because I mentioned it, but it was subconscious. It's automatic. In our business, all those elements of profit and sales, order, impact and legacy, they're all playing out at all times. There's a subconscious kind of automatic stream on that. The question is, where do we need to concentrate the fix? What of the foundation needs to be strengthened next? Once we identify that and resolve that, then we elevate to the next hierarchical element, fix that, and then we bounce around to another. We keep moving around to apply fixes. Okay, makes a lot of sense. And what I find, and I think you find as well, is most of us with, as small business owners are stuck at two or maybe three in other words, getting it to be consistently profitable, which is what I want to segue into next. And then maybe if you've kind of conquered that, then it's, you know, that lack of organizational efficiency, that lack of systems, you're, it's still you that has to do it all. But I want to do the deeper dive on profit because that then is the, the focus of the book that you wrote that, that I really appreciated and that I've yeah. tried to apply. So let's talk about that if we could. Let's segue into the profit first formula. I was hoping you could introduce that and then we have several questions for you about that. Sure, sure. So the, the foundational formula for profit is that uh, profit comes last. It's it sales minus expenses equals profit. And I, I heard a statistic that really opened my eyes to a problem with profit came from a U.S. bank. They conducted a study of small business and identified that 83% of small businesses are surviving check by check. Mm -hmm. They have cash flow problems. They don't have substantial sales coming in today, deposits coming in today from sales. They don't have enough money to pay their bills tomorrow. There's this constant check to check survival. And uh, I validated this. I, I have an organization. We have over 450 accountants and bookkeepers that work in our organization. And uh, they're collectively working with tens of thousands of clients. And we validated that this number is actually on the conservative side. It's more like 90% wow. of businesses are surviving check by check. Well, the question came about to me is, if, how, how come so many businesses are struggling with, with profit if that's the primary reason we start our business? Most owners I met start their business for financial freedom and personal freedom. I want to do what I want when I want. That's personal freedom. And I want to not ever worry about bills. That's financial freedom. And yet, those are the two things we don't get. We work our butts off, we're, we're beholden to the business, and we have no money to show for it. Well, the foundational formula of sales minus expense equals profit 
I believe is the problem because entrepreneurs can do so many elements. We can do sales, we can do marketing, we can serve our clients, we can deliver our products and goods. We can have them raving about the experience. We just miss this one component. And I am now convinced it's because the formula of sales minus expense equals profit is flawed. It makes logical sense. It does not make behavioral sense. It is human nature when something comes last, it means it's insignificant. Mm -hmm. if, if I believe that health is important, I never say, I'm going to put my health last. If I love my family, I never say, I love them so much, that's why I put them last. That all, all those things mean insignificant, don't consider that as the manana syndrome. Right, and it's also that it leads to us to thinking, well, it, it'll come, the profits will come. Yeah. It'll come, it'll come, right. We, yeah. we put them off and put them off and put them off and hope that one day it'll just fall in our lap. Right. So the new formula is sales minus profit equals expenses. And what this means is that in practice, every time I have a sale in my organization, I take a predetermined percentage of that money, allocate it toward profit, and then run the business off the remainder. It's the pay yourself first principle applied to business. If $1,000 comes in today and I, I want to take a 10% profit, $100 goes toward profit, and I don't have $1,000 to operate my business, I have $900 to operate my business. That's how this concept works. Pick your profit. Here's the thing, Mike, though. I think that the challenge here is, for people that are listening to this, and I've been guilty of this, is that we might have a business that from the start, we never validated that the business model works. And if the business model is broken, in other words, what we're doing, what we're offering, I can't make a profit on, I continue to bury my head in the sand and hope that somehow that'll change if I sell more of it. Yeah, that's sadly very common is we think we can sell our way out of it, or we don't understand if our model works, or we think that it takes money to make money, uh, or we think we can, we can invest in one day that profit switch will just happen to your earlier point. So the by way that I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go oh, ahead. I was going to say, by taking our profit first, it then forces us into the consideration, is this a viable business? Because mm -hmm. if I want to achieve 10% profit and I take that 10% first, then I have to find a way to work up 90%. And in many cases, I can. In many cases, I was being dumbed down by the access to money. So I reduced the access to money. Now I have to find more innovative ways to run my business. If I still can't do it, I don't have a viable business. And I'd rather know I don't have a viable business today before I accumulate tons of debt than later on when I'm beholden to debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. So spot on. And I think that I think the mistake I see people doing is they don't do that hard analysis or math up front. And I get it. It's hard sometimes because you're dealing with projections, but you got to validate at least up front that that it might work at least and then prove it, like you said, and then decide very early on, do I need to adjust my model? Do I need to change my product mix? What do I need to do so that this does work? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's funny. So one of the things we do uh, with our clients who are doing profit first is we first have the core system, with five accounts, you allocate money toward profit, you allocate money toward other purposes like tax reserves. Actually, the, the biggest bill associated with the operation of a business that a business owner is least prepared for is taxes. So we reserve mm -hmm. for that and we reserve money for operating expenses. Then what we do is we say, okay, well, you used to think you have $1,000 available for operating your business. It's more like $400. Mm-hmm. Now we have $400, we say, you know, we have an idea of something that may serve our business, but we don't have much money, so we start testing. So to your point, the validation isn't, let's go all in on an idea. It's like, 
let's validate our idea is really a good one, that it, that it engages clients the way we want or that it attracts opportunities the way we want. So you start testing on a smaller basis and that's far more effective because then once it's working and you've proof, we amplify it. If it's not that's working, right. you just and try something different. Yeah. And I found that it got better and better as I had more history, because then I could look at last year, I knew what my allocations needed to be to all the different operating expense budgets. I did the math, you know, the, what, what's left over from expenses. And then I allocated and then worked on those budgets. And we measured it, you know, at least on a quarterly basis to make sure we were on target for those budgets. But as to your point, it is amazing that psychological power of when you have more limited resources, or at least when you're keeping track of it, you're less likely to waste it. So there's a, there's a philosopher, a behavioral psychologist, maybe. His name is uh, Northcote Parkinson was his name. Parkinson. He developed what's called Parkinson's Law. And uh, Parkinson's Law was a study of resources. He actually challenged the classic supply and demand curve, saying as demand increases, supply increases to meet demand. It's an economic model. But he argued from a behavioral aspect, it's reverse. As supply increases, our demand for that supply increases. Classic example is if you put one, I like chocolate chip cookies, one chocolate chip <laughs> cookie in front of me, I'll eat it. Uh, my daughter enjoys every so often putting 15 in front of me, and <laughs> I cannot stop myself. I eat all 15. Um, the supplies increase, so is my consumption. Well, this model applies to uses of all resources. Parkinson's work was mostly in time. If, if, if we're negotiating a contract, Henry, and I say I'll get that deal to you in one week, it'll likely take me a week to prepare that contract. If, if the same people have the same conversation about the same parameters, but I say, I'll get to you in one day, I'll likely get to you in one day. Less time, more efficient, faster movement. Well, it applies to money too. As money expands its availability, we consume more. So with Profit First, we extract out that expanding money and hide it from ourselves mm -hmm. so that we work within the constraints. And it's because of Parkinson's Law why we had that uncanny experience. So many businesses experience that growth curve of income over time. Year in and year out, over time, in general, there's an increasing, albeit bumpy, path of income. But uncannily, expenses run at the exact same um, rate. As, as income increases, expenses increase. It seems like we can never get ahead of the expenses. You land that big deal, you're like, finally, I'm here. And then it's like, oh, all those big expenses come along. Well, that's not, it's not like some kind of super magical supernatural phenomena, it's Parkinson's law. It's simply, as we see more money, we spend more money. And that's why businesses are almost always on the brink. Up or down in income, they always seem to be on the brink. It's Parkinson's law. So we're gonna insert a gap there by taking your profit out first, reducing your amount of your operating expenses, and now Parkinson's law works to your advantage. Yeah, I love it. I love the, uh, I downloaded the, the guide that you have on this on oh, cool. your website, and it, it walks through that and explains that, and it's got some tips. And so, I'll, I'll wrap it up on this topic with this question. When you uh, are working with a client, they've not applied any of this, where do you guide them to get started with managing their business this way? Yeah, so the first thing I do is I acknowledge they potentially have some skepticism. And I acknowledge that because I have skepticism. I, I yeah, guess it's, it's counterintuitive, really. Counterintuitive, yeah, yeah exactly. Especially yeah. if we took any accounting classes in college, right? I mean, it's, it's just not. There's thousands of books that say profit comes last. It's, it's our vernacular, bottom line, year end, final take. I, I hook, line, sinker, I believed it myself. And I think I'm ground zero for profit first. You know, I started 12 years ago. I've had 40 
46 or 47 now consecutive quarters of profit distributions. And I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this because 12 years ago, I would never believe the business could have more than a quarter of, of consecutive profit distributions, it seemed. The key was this, start slow and let it grow. If you're skeptical, you're normal and you're human. I just challenge you to try something new and just dip your toe in the water. What I tell people is just go set up one account, set up a savings account at your bank and call it profit. Take 15, 20 minutes. You can do it online now because of the COVID situation. Then allocate 1% of your income. So $1,000 comes in. Now I'm saying only take $10. Because if you can run your business off $1,000, you can run off $990. The, the impact is inconsequential. But now you have $10 in your profit account. And you'll start experiencing this, this increasing cash in your profit account. That's when it starts becoming a, dan- a game changer. That's when you start realizing, oh my gosh, that, that, $10, that 1% could become 2%, 3%. We have now, Henry, over 350,000 businesses that have implemented Profit First. We have lots of case studies, lots of them. And we've discovered that consistently the businesses that are successful in implementing and sticking with Profit First started slow and they developed over time. They did not go in full throttle. They went slowly. So that's that how you sense. get started. That makes sense. And, and I think you just have to have as the owner, uh, what I call it, a ruthless approach to profitability. It has to be the thing. And, and it drives in as you just articulated, what do I do next? And I think it also for a lot of business owners is about part of what I think you have to do next is to critically analyze your products and services to see the ones that are not profitable and, and jettison those things and focus where the profitability is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. It totally is. Yeah. You start reverse engineering profit. Right. So once you take your profit out first, you will have that situation where you can't pay your bills. Yeah. We actually have a saying here. If you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. Mm-hmm. If you want to achieve say 10% profit, and that's what you're taking out now and you can't pay your bills, your business is speaking to you. It's saying your right. bills are not in alignment with that profit. You need to cut costs or increase margin. Or in most cases, you got to do both. Yeah. How do we increase margins while controlling costs and force innovation? Yeah, well, it's said. reverse engineering profit. And, and that's where the clarity comes from. Mm-hmm. You very clearly where you're spending in excess and where you're devaluing your, your offering and need to increase its value, therefore margin. Absolutely. Great stuff. All right. Um, tell us a little bit more about the services you're offering today. And I, I think you've got a, a special download that uh, you yeah. offer. So please tell us about that. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, you know, my focus right now is uh, is focus helping businesses determine where to get started with profit first, but but in any element of their business because we are, as you shared earlier, those firefighters. So I set up a site; it's totally free. It's fixthisnext.com. It's based upon my book. You don't need access to the book or anything. You can do this for free, and there's no download or anything. It just presents it on the screen, so it's super quick. But if you go to fixthisnext.com, you'll see a button there, uh, nice and red, nice and big, that says "Take the free evaluation." It will evaluate your business. It will determine where within these different levels specifically, there's actually 25 different potential combinations, exactly where your business is. So you can start applying the next fix that will move your business toward your vision. So that's free at fixthisnext.com. Great stuff. I think everybody needs to take advantage of that because if we're stuck, this just is a few minutes investment. Uh, if you can get any kind of input that helps you figure out what to do next, 
then, then it's huge. So thanks for sharing that. I know you're big into books as I am. You're always reading. We've talked about your books, Profit First, your latest yeah. book, Fix This Next. Is there another book that I think is one you're reading currently that you might recommend? Yeah, I was just wrapping up uh, Rejection Proof. And, and I love sharing this book because it's, uh, it's not well known, but it's a really great book. The author, his name is Jia Zhang, if I said his name correctly, um, came to the U.S. from China uh, and was just uh, really uh, nervous in a community. He, he was highly introverted um, and realized the only way he was going to build confidence in himself uh, to achieve his business aspirations was to build the muscle over rejection. He was so fearful of rejection. So he, commit, he committed to a journey of 100 days of rejections, asking absurd requests wow. to see how people respond. And what he does is he documented his journey and what he learned from it and how he changed as a human. It's really a fascinating story and powerful lessons. Great. Thanks for that recommendation. We'll have a link to it on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, Mike, great stuff. I could keep talking for hours, but let's wrap it up. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation, especially in the focus that we took on finding profit first in our small businesses? What's one thing you want us to stick set up, with? Set up that account. You know, I, I told you the, the, the simplest, easiest step is to, to start profit. I think within 24 hours of hearing this, there's no excuse not to set up an account with your bank and, and start allocating 1%. It is so easy. And I think the grand mistake people make is they hear and say, oh, that's an interesting idea, great idea. And it's left there. And a year from now or two, they're not profitable. And they're like, what should I do? You have a chance right now to bring permanent profitability. And I assure you, it's permanent profitability to your business. If you just set this one account, start with 1%. And, uh, and then now that you've dipped your toe in the water, start swimming down the road. Yeah. And then that begins that process of, if you need to, reverse engineering to figure out what you need to change in your business to get profitable and stay profitable consistently. That's right. Where do you want us to go online again to find out more? So you can go to fixthisnext.com to get started. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to mikemichalowitz.com. No one can spell that. So you can go to mikemotorbike.com. That's uh, my old nickname in high school is Mike Motorbike. Go to mikemotorbike.com. You'll learn all about what I've going on. That's wonderful. Mine. Mike, a uh, wonderful conversation as I knew it would be. Thank you so much for taking the time to share of your knowledge and to be with us today. Henry, it's been a joy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Mike McCallowitz. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com, or just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996 to receive more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.